Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Dave Cavill was named the seventh president in Oakland A's history in November of 2016, bringing a wealth of experience from many different areas of the sports world with him to Oakland. From being the founder of an independent baseball league to running a major league soccer franchise, Cavill has been an innovator in every sense of the word. I had an opportunity to sit down with Cavill for a lengthy conversation discussing his time working in the office of the President of the United States, being classmates with Tiger Woods, why he wrote a book about a summer-long tour of all 30 Major League ballparks, and why keeping the A's in Oakland is crucial, both to the city and the organization. Enjoy this conversation with Oakland A's President, Dave Cavill. Dave, thanks for taking the time to talk. Appreciate it. It's great to be here. Uh, so you grew up in Cleveland. I would assume you were a big Indians fan? Huge Indians fan. Went down to the Mistake by the Lake. You know, used to check out games, especially in April. There was probably two or 3,000 people there. And actually, we would actually spell out in the second deck, go tribe. You'd pull the seats down and you could like make a G and right. an O. And then by the time you got to the R in tribe the guys would be running after us to try to sneak us out of the stadium. So it was a great experience to kind of have an intimate view of baseball in Cleveland growing up. You didn't play past high school, but has baseball always been your passion in terms of sports? I think so. I mean, I always loved the pace of the game, the fact that it was social, the fact that you could kind of experience it with your family and friends and watch this, you know, magnificent kind of showcase of of players um, on the field. So that was something I always loved. And, you know, when I graduated from Stanford undergrad, I traveled to all 30 baseball parks in 38 days. And then we wrote a book on it called The Summer That Saved Baseball. And so I've always had passion for the game and really the spectacle of watching and what that means for fans and and for people alike. We will get to that book momentarily. Uh, I read that you learned to fly a plane before you learned to drive a car. That's true. Uh, Got your pilot's license at the age of 17. 17. Started flying when I was 15. Yeah. I saw Top Gun when I was a kid. I was like, come on, let's make it happen. You know, Tom Cruise worked out for him. So people call you Maverick? No, that was not my call. I didn't really have a call sign. I didn't really get, I was only flying like Cessnas. So there was no call signs in that. Um, but it was a great experience, especially when you're young, to be able to be alone. You, you would solo when you're 15 years old, and then you have this plane, and you're soaring above everything. You got to figure out where you are, where to go, how to communicate, how to get to the back of the airport. And I think it built a lot of confidence in me at an early age. It's, it's, a, it's fascinating because it's not something that obviously most people do. What drew you to the um, besides Top Gun? What drew you to you wanting know, to learn I, how to fly a plane? It was funny because my um, my dad, one of my dad's business partners, actually had a plane. 
and he took me up when I was like 10. And I just thought it was so cool. And you were up there, you know, like soaring, and like he let me kind of like control it a little bit. I'm only 10 years old, 10, 11. And it just created kind of a fascination with it. And it was something that by the time I was 15, I said, hey, I was. I really want to do this, and my parents supported it, so it was great. You mentioned that you went to Stanford, you got your bachelor's degree there in international relations, 1998, went on to get an MBA there mm-hmm. as well. Uh, as you were going through college and then your, your graduate degree, did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in sports? Um, I don't think particularly sports per se. I, I think it was, for me, I always wanted to own my own business or run my own business. And so the opportunity for me to get into sports really happened when I graduated from the business school and I started a professional minor league in independent leagues, the Golden Baseball League. And so I kind of came at this through a more of an entrepreneurial perspective as opposed to like, hey, I just want to be in sports no matter what. Um, and that kind of drunken walk of a career ended up you know, getting me through soccer and then back into baseball here with the A's. And so for me, it was more about starting a business, running a business than sports in general. But it obviously marries my passion for sports and baseball with something that I have a skill set, so it works out well. Everybody who goes to college thinks back to college days and says, oh, I remember this guy, or hey, you remember that guy mm-hmm. I went to college with? You went to college with a guy named Tiger Woods. This is uh, true. <laughs> yes, he was in my class. We had a lot. At Stanford, we had him. We had Fred Savage, you know, from the Wonder Years, uh-huh. was in my class. Danny Pintaro from Who's the Boss. You know, obviously Tiger Woods. Sure. So it was, a, I guess it was a who's who of the late 90s. What was it like <laughs> watching Tiger go on to become one of the most transcendent athletes we've ever seen? Well, I mean, obviously I always rooted for him. I still do because he's a Stanford guy. He's someone I knew as a freshman. We took classes together. actually drove to class together. He had a bum knee freshman year, so he had like a handicap sticker he could park. But he didn't have a car. So I had a Mustang convertible, so I would we'd take my car so we could sleep in 15 minutes later. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're near college, you just want to sleep as much as you can. Absolutely, um, Sleep is the king. Right? That is the king. So it, it was a great opportunity to get to know him. And, and in that setting, no one knew what he was going to become. Sure. And at Stanford, I think people are just viewed as a student. You know, there wasn't a celebrity around him. But to see what he was able to accomplish 14 majors is just truly incredible. And, um, you know, I wish him the best as he continues to pursue 15. Uh, Following your graduation, you mentioned that you and your friend friend Brad Null embarked on this 15,000-mile, 38-day journey Mm -hmm. around America to go see all 30 major league ballparks. You wrote a book, The Summer That Saved Baseball. Uh, Any one or two things about that trip stand out to you? Um, well, there's so many different things. I mean, there's so many things we wrote a book about it. So um, I, I think some of the journey was just pretty unbelievable. Like, I remember we were in Tampa Bay, and we had to drive overnight to Baltimore for the next game. And I remember the people in Tampa Bay, because we would get tours from all the different, like, concessions operators, you know, team PR folks, you know, and they actually put this whole, like, care package together for us because they knew we had to drive, like, a 1,000 miles overnight. And they made sure that we got out of the stadium and had good parking. It's just people took care of us on that trip because they were so impressed with, you know, our journey and all the different ballparks we were going to. And the funny thing is we're on that trip and it's like we're somewhere in South Carolina and it's like the middle of the night. I turned to Brad. I'm like, thanks for paying for the gas. He goes, oh, I didn't pay for the gas. And I said, well, I didn't pay for the gas either. So we like just filled up and just went. <laughs> so like, there's probably still like an all points bulletin for us in South Carolina. Um, but we made the game in, in Baltimore and saw all nine innings. So it was great. You said that that trip gave you a real awareness of the fan experience, having mm-hmm. seen it at all 30 parks. As you've gotten into baseball, 
have you reflected back on on those fan experiences and tried to incorporate some of that into your job now? Absolutely. You know, I think it's easy for a team executive um, or ownership to lose sight of the fan and and truly what makes baseball or any sporting event special for the people who come. And I think back to the Golden Baseball League or the fact that I still go and experience games as fans. It's critical. And, And people... They want to be treated well. They want to be close to the action. They want to connect to the individual players and understand the narrative and storylines of the season, of the teams. And if you don't celebrate those things and really curate them as an executive, I think you can lose sight of what's important. And that's one reason, like, for instance, I have office hours now to stay connected to the fan base. So every Tuesday, anyone can come in off the street and meet me and talk about who should play third base. They can tell me about their uncle, who I should hire, or sell me insurance, or whatever it ends up being. And it's just a great way to keep your um, finger on the pulse of the, of the team. It's been 20 years since that trip. Mm-hmm. About half the league stadiums have been replaced since mm-hmm. then. Have you, been, have you made it back I've to been all almost, of them? to almost all of them. There's a couple I haven't been to. I haven't been to the one in Atlanta yet. Um, That's the only hole in my resume. Too. Yeah, so I haven't been there. And actually, I haven't been to Minnesota, Target. So I still need to get there, which I'm going to do. So, But all the other ones I've seen and been to like New Yankee and seen the renovations, like, you know, it's amazing what they did at Fenway. Like, when we, when we went to Fenway in 98, we actually wrote a guest essay on how they should save Fenway Park. Wow. Because they were going to tear it down. Right. People forget that they were going to tear it down and build a new one. And we just felt that the old parks, like from that era, Wrigley, Tiger, Fenway... Think back to Forbes Field in Pittsburgh you know, before they tore it down. Those were the great venues, and they were intimate. It was really baseball in its heyday, the first steel and concrete venues. And I think those are the types of things we want to incorporate in the new ballpark in Oakland, which we're really excited about. You spent time, this one jumped off the resume as mm-hmm. I was prepping yeah. for this. You spent time in the office of the President of the United States yep. working as a budget manager for national security as part of the OMB. How did that come about? Uh, that was all because I had kind of Lisa Rice as a professor in undergrad. And when I was between my two years of business school, for the first time, this was in the Bush administration, um, they actually went to business schools to try to find interns and people interested in getting into government. And so I had the amazing opportunity to work at the Office of Management and Budget. And my group oversaw the budget of national security, which is huge. I mean, my first day on the job, I did this little presentation and went to Andy Card, who was the chief of staff. And I did it. It went in. The next morning, I came in, and my boss is sitting in my chair. I'm like, uh oh, this doesn't look good. <laughs> Not and, anything you and, ever want to see yeah, when you yeah, walk yeah, into work. Yeah. And uh, Gene, who was my boss, Gene Ebner, and he, he looks at me and goes, Did you finish that thing that you sent over to Andy Card? I said, Yeah. He, he crumbles it up and he throws it at me, like the thing. I'm like, Oh no. And he's like, It was in the millions. Here at OMB, at the office of the president, we round to the billion. <laughs> I was like, whoa. That's good you're playing yeah, a different yeah, game. Yeah, it was a different point, game. Right? It was another couple zeros. Another couple zeros. So <laughs> after that presentation, everything was in the billions. So <laughs> Wow, that's that's unbelievable. Uh, among your other jobs before getting into sports mm-hmm. full-time, you worked at KeyBank. You were a business analyst at Accenture, director of business development for Sparks.com. As you go through all of these jobs, are you... I mean, you said your goal is to kind of run or, or own your own mm-hmm. business. Are you trying to sort of figure out how to best go about that goal? Yeah, I mean, I've always been someone who um, likes to build things. You know, whether it was the stadium um, in San Jose for the soccer team, a vice stadium, or an organization like the A's or a new ballpark for the A's, or the different places I've been in the past. And so for me, that building, like even when I had the Golden Baseball League, that's what gets me excited. And, you know, that stuff's hard. There's fits and starts. Things go wrong. There are crises. You have people who quit. 
you have people who you need to fire, all these challenges. And I found that in my career that almost when it's the, the craziest of situations is almost when I'm at my best because my skill set has the biggest gap with like maybe just the average person. My, my war, my win over replacement is high in those situations. And so for me, I've always been someone who likes the big challenges and I want to tackle them because of the impact that it can have, not only for your own personal edification, but for the community and the organization that you're running. You've been to the Golden Baseball League a couple times. Uh, you were responsible for raising the initial capital to launch the league, got investors, mm-hmm. made marketing deals, sponsorship yeah. deals, etc. cetera. Uh, you're a business student at that point. Yeah. How did, how did the idea come about? And I mean, I would imagine that's a, a pretty tall task to start thinking about being a 23-year-old and I'm going to go launch a minor league. Oh, people thought we were crazy. Uh, only, I think, my mom truly thought there was any hope that this thing <laughs> was going to happen. Great. The moms are the best. The moms are the best. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, we were in business school. Everyone else was starting tech companies. This is 2003. And we were in a class called Evaluating Entrepreneurial Opportunities. This is the same class where eBay got started, all these other famous companies, you know, from Stanford. And so we wrote a business plan to start a baseball league from scratch. Because in Western United States, there are a lot less minor league teams. Because the minors were kind of capped at about 160 teams. And most of them are legacy, for legacy reasons, are in the East. But the population... Had been growing in the West. So we're like, you know, there are all these communities. Chico, California, Yuma, Arizona, Long Beach, even some in Canada, Victoria, where you could add teams. And we said, you know what? Let's do it. So we wrote the whole business plan. And I remember we presented it to a group of venture capitalists and angel investors. We did a two-hour presentation, not a single question. Like, all the other stuff was tech. So we left the meeting. We're like, wow, we totally bombed. This thing's been a total disaster. So I went out to my car, and I remember I had a convertible, and I was putting the top down on my car. And I hear something, and someone's running after me. And it was Terry Garnett, who was one of the VCs. And he goes, Dave, 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 I got to tell you, I'm ready to invest. I'm like, whoa. And we weren't even ready to take the money. We had no concept of, like, what our operating agreement was or anything. And so, But it made us realize that we had something there. There was a kernel of an idea about family entertainment, about baseball, about community. And that gave us some of the confidence to keep moving forward. And we ended up raising you know, over $20 million to launch the league. And we had teams all over Western North America. We had many ups and downs, but we had guys like Ricky Henderson who played for us, Jose Canseco. We had a team of all Japanese players, the Samurai Bears, which was a huge draw with Warren Cromarty as the skipper. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity to be a president and a founder of a league which is, you know, not you're in rare company doing that. And it was something that I always remember is, is making an impact on baseball. After those seven years, <clears throat> excuse me, you left the league to join the San Jose Earthquakes yeah. uh, in Major League Soccer as the team president in 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, you oversaw the business and technical sides of the franchise, obviously helped build the stadium, mm-hmm. get the stadium built. How does MLS compare to MLB in terms of running a team? Well, I mean, it's very similar. You have all the same revenue streams, whether it's media or tickets or sponsorship. But MLS, you're, you're really more of a challenger type situation. And so you're still trying to grow soccer and make soccer at the same level uh, as the NFL or Major League Baseball in America. And so you really have to push hard. It has a little more of an entrepreneurial feel to it, both at the league level and then at the team level. But the nice thing is, is you know, that obviously is a big difference or a stark difference between MLB, but maybe not as big a difference between the A's 
because we're in a, also in a situation where we're trying to grow our brand, we're trying to build a new ballpark, we're trying to elevate our awareness and kind of the positive perception around our organization. And that is a great situation for someone like me with my background. And that's why I'm so excited about you know tackling the challenge every day. You had talked about sort of monitoring the fan experience mm-hmm. at all the ballparks when you did your tour. Uh, you also traveled to Europe and South America to learn yeah. about soccer's international appeal. Yeah. How much of that did you try to bring with you to San Jose? I mean, soccer is a popular sport, but obviously not as popular as some of the bigger sports in, in the United yeah. States. How much of trying to bring where it's the most popular over here was part of your Well, one, your thing, I, one thing I found was that you needed to make sure the supporters groups were part of the process, not only of designing the stadium, but also that you really respected their voice. And I think in soccer especially, they are it's a loud voice. And the fans feel that they are a steward of the team, probably more so than any other sport. And I think the other North American League sports can learn from that. Almost a little bit of the Green Bay Packers model, where the fans feel a true sense of ownership. There it's overt. They actually own shares. But I think in our case, in Oakland and in baseball, fans who feel more vested in what's happening and have a voice are more connected and engaged. And that actually is a differentiator vis-a-vis the other sports. Speaking of soccer supporter groups, I saw that in 2014 you got into a bit of a Twitter beef with some of the with more the than once yes the, the ultras the, the ultras Seattle, yeah oh in Seattle, Seattle oh yes yes that's exactly uh, right do you do you find your is it hard not to fall into sort of fan mode sometimes when you're so invested with the team I, I think in that case I just felt like I was defending the the quakes and our supporters and like I someone needed to be that voice um and I think actually those derbies those rivalries amongst the different clubs is is one thing that makes sports fun and so it's the same thing I've tried to do here with the Giants and the A's and some of the you know, gimmicks and, and fun things we've done, like the hat exchange, where you can come and actually bring a Giants hat and we'll exchange it for an A's hat. It's similar to those types of experiences with the Sounders when I, when I had the Quakes. So that's a fun thing we're going to see. You're going to see more of that. So you, uh, you joined the A's as team president in November of 2016, but you were still the president of the Quakes at the time. I was. I did both for a period of time. That was a crazy period of time. Was it, was it hard? I think it was probably about eight months, I yeah, think. Yeah. Uh, was it a hard decision for you to, to leave the Quakes, given sort of you know, the history you had with that team? Well, I mean, I'm still on the board, so I'm still like peripherally involved. But I think more than anything, I feel like what I set out to do when I came there in 2010 had been accomplished. You know, we built, we won one league title, which was great, the Supporter Shield. We built a new stadium, which transformed the organization. And I built a management team that could exist without me, which on some level as a leader is almost like the ultimate sign of success. And so I felt like, you know, I wanted to take on a new challenge. Obviously, the A's situation is a big challenge. To get a ballpark privately financed in Oakland is not an easy thing. Um, and so I was kind of ready for the next chapter. When you did take over, uh, you were very firm in your team's commitment to Oakland. 100%. A lot of teams have used the threat of a move to help secure mm-hmm. stadium deals. We've seen that time and time again. Why was it so important to you from the outset to make it very clear where rooted in Oakland was the, was the campaign? Well, I think our fans, getting back to the fan piece and understanding our fans and just fans of sport, Like I, I feel that the A's fans had had a very difficult ride and they had not been respected and they just had not been spoken to, um, you know, kind of in a direct way. And so I wanted to reaffirm our commitment to Oakland because it has been the key to our success over 50 years and our fan base and the experience at our ballpark at the Coliseum, it is exciting and there's great memories and we want more memories before we build a new ballpark. 
And so our commit to, commitment to Oakland is really at the centerpiece of who we are as an organization. And I just wanted to be very clear about that, and I've, I've done that since I started. So We know the Raiders are moving to Las Vegas in a couple of years. The Warriors are headed for San Francisco after next season. Does that make the A's even more important to Oakland than ever before? I think tremendously so. I mean, I think the city is in a position where it's at kind of a crossroads. And for us to lead it into this next era as the only professional sports team is really important. And it's important for the quality of life, for feeling you're a major league team, to have a professional sports team, especially in a community like Oakland where there's all these great history of baseball players. Whether it's you know Billy Martin growing up in Berkeley, Frank Robinson, Joe Morgan, Ricky Henderson, Dave Stewart. Our area has produced some of the best baseball players in the history of the game. You go to Cooperstown, there's a lot of Oakland or East Bay folks there. Right. And we need to curate that for another generation. That's only going to happen with the A's as a critical leader in our community. You mentioned your office hours before mm-hmm. where fans can come in and talk yeah. to you. You started that with the Quakes. I did, yeah. Um, You've continued it with the A's. What's the weirdest thing fans ever wanted to talk to you about? Well, someone came in with a floating stadium idea. Like, <laughs> I'm serious. And he was the civil engineer. This guy was no joke. He had a whole, like, 30-page PowerPoint deck. And we went through this whole thing. It was a floating stadium with, like, six tugboats. And it couldn't work with four tugboats. He needed six. And it would, could go anywhere in the bay. We could have taken it and put it right next to AT&T. Like, I mean, it was, like, the craziest concept I had ever seen. But... You know, he spent a lot of time on it, so I wanted to respect his time and the thoughts he had. And so we spent, you know, probably 40 minutes going over the floating stadium. So I think that was probably the high watermark <laughs> of absurdity that I've seen. But there's been all sorts of stuff. People, like, obviously a lot of people want jobs. A lot of people want advice on how to break into sports. Some people want to, you know, give their point of view on decisions that I've made with the organization. Um, there was a nine-year-old boy who came in, and he just talked about how he had a really terrible peanut allergy and he could not come to the ballpark even though he loved the ace so out of that we created a whole zone because we have plenty of space that's a <laughs> peanut free zone and it's kept clean and he can now come to eight or ten games and not have to worry about someone dropping a peanut there and having an allergic reaction and so many great ideas have come out of these sessions and whenever that we do that we make it the community aware of it and I think it gives people more confidence to come in and approach me about new things that we could try. Because when, when you hear about the office hours, the first thing that runs through my head is you've got, you know, 15 Frank Costanzas running in going, why'd you trade Josh Donaldson? There, yeah, there's some of, of that. No, I have that too. There's about trading. There's about all that, you know, it runs the gamut of different things. Um, but I think on some level people understand too, like I can't, you can't do everything that's suggested, but fans should have a voice and there should be a way to interact with your executives, and this is a great way to do that. You talked about the, the cap switch idea yep. of trading in a Giants hat for an A's hat. When you started, you made a point of increasing the team's marketing efforts on the mm-hmm. other side of the bay. That's right. Uh, how important is San Francisco to your fan base? There are A's fans in San Francisco, and they're going to be more because we play a great brand of baseball. We play in the American League, and we have a fun team with a different type of brand than the Giants. And so we were going to continue to market in San Francisco and, you know, whether it's the hat buyback or we took a, you know, bus station and we put a big A's hat on it, you know, or we're going to have different billboards and stuff like that. Um, it's a great way to actually cultivate fans, especially, you know, with younger fans, they like that type of stuff. Like baseball needs to do a better job of not just focusing on the existing fans. We have for the first time need to start generating new fans. It's not just going to happen on its own. And that's more akin to my experience in soccer, where you had to do fan development and get people excited about the sport. 
think baseball's at a time now with all the other competition that, that we need to be smarter about that. And we're certainly doing that in Oakland. I think my favorite thing that I saw that you did on the other side of the bay was when you and the front office and employees and even Stomper yep. took over the bay. McCovey Cove takeover. During we had a flotilla <laughs> of 14 boats across the water. I mean, it was it was one of the highlights of, of my time with the A's. I saw shooting the t-shirt cannons, yes. shooting the A-shirts. We did. I mean, we did. How'd you, how'd you come up with that idea? Take over McCovey Cove. Um, you know, I just felt that we needed to take back, um, kind of, we needed our mojo back a little bit with the Giants. You know, obviously they've won all these championships recently, but, you know, we still have more championships than them, both in Oakland and overall. We have nine world championships total, only behind the Cardinals and the Yankees. And we need to do more things like that. And those things are fun. You know, baseball's supposed to be fun. Ricky Henderson and I talk about all the time. It's supposed to be fun. And those kind of irreverent type of things are perfect for the A's. They fit our history. And uh, there's going to be more flotillas. So. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you talk about the nine world championships and the history of the, of the franchise over the past 50 years. Last year on opening day, you named the field of the Coliseum after Ricky Henderson. Yeah. Uh, you hired him as a special assistant. You've brought in Dennis Eckersley and now Raleigh Fingers as, as special mm-hmm. assistants. Why is it so important to bring guys like that back into the fold, uh, even as you're trying to market and promote your current players? Well, I think we need to respect the history, especially since it's so um, much part of who we are. And and we have these amazing players and even executives who've been part of what it is to be, you know, an Oakland A or even all the way back to Kansas City or Philadelphia. And so we need to do everything we can to celebrate that. And on some level, we need to give our fans the why. Why be a fan of the Oakland A's? Well, hell, we're one of the best and most storied franchises in all of sport. Well, that's a story that needs to get out there, and we need to do everything we can to celebrate that and have Raleigh Fingers and understand that he's got a crazy mustache, and why was that important? Well, in that era, people weren't allowed to have facial hair when they played baseball. Well, that's crazy. That has to, You have to start asking a lot of questions about society in the 60s and the 70s, and those are the important things that baseball can be for fans and for our community. And so we're having fun with it, and we're going to continue to bring all those former players back into the mix. You've mentioned a quest to get a new stadium several mm-hmm. times already uh, and the fact that you were able to get a stadium built mm-hmm. in San Jose for the earthquakes that's been cited as a key reason why yeah. the A's wanted you there does that put pressure on you to get this deal done is that is that like when you look at your job and your yep. responsibilities is that number one through five on your list of- it's, it's right on the top of the list and I'm focused every day like a laser beam on getting the ballpark built um, and, and the right ballpark one that you know, is really unique to Oakland and one that can really evoke our spirit um, that we have in our community and one that's fun to go to. I mean, I think you've seen Camden Yards that ushered in a whole new era of ballparks. I think in Oakland we can kind of take that next step and be the Camden of the next generation and have a stadium that appeals more to younger fans, maybe a little more urban, connected to kind of the fabric of the community in a way that's different, a little smaller, intimate, that's going to be important for us to be successful as a sport, and we're hoping that that can be a model for future success. So, yes, the, the ballpark is on top of the list, um, and we're making a lot of progress, and we're excited about you know opening a ballpark you know, by 2023. You announced a site for a new stadium last year. Mm-hmm. That deal fell apart. The this is true. The Peralta Community College District Board came out and mm-hmm. said it directed the chancellor to stop talks. Were you surprised it fell apart? It seemed like every, there was real progress headed towards Yeah, we, that. I mean, we were surprised. I mean, it was obviously a setback, but, you know, one thing that I knew when I took over and started the ballpark process is that we're going to be ups and downs, and that was certainly a down, 
But by the same token, it's how you respond to those situations. It's how you come up with a new plan. It's how you engage the community in an honest way to make sure that we can have success. And that's why we've redoubled our efforts on the other sites, Howard Terminal and also the Coliseum, to make sure we find a home in Oakland that's a win not only for the A's, but for the community at large. What's the biggest challenge of a project like this? You went through it once before on a bit of a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. What what are the biggest challenges when you are actually trying to take on this responsibility? Well, I think it's balancing the community's needs with the organization's needs. And like you have to find that intersection. And I think we have a unique opportunity right now in Oakland where the political establishment, the ownership and management of our team, and the economic environment, obviously we're in a good economy, are all aligned to get a new privately financed stadium done. Because if any of those things are out of alignment and they've been out of alignment in the past, it won't happen. And so there's kind of a window of opportunity here with me leading this effort to get this done, to get the ballpark entitled, to break ground, to open it, and then to have this amazing asset for generations to come for the Oakland A's and for, for Oakland. We've seen a lot of great players play for Oakland and then leave Oakland mm-hmm. as free agents. Payroll has not been you know, uh, yeah. at the top of the list by any means. Would a new ballpark change that? Would that, would that be a big way, you know, a big step in keeping players who, you know, I mean, I remember when I started covering baseball, mm-hmm. the A's had Jason Giambi and Eric Chavez and mm-hmm. Tejada and yep. all these great players, and they were really great teams, and then you saw one by one they would leave for free agency. How much of a factor is a new ballpark in being able to compete with the big boys, so that's, to speak? That's one of the critical reasons we're building it. You know, for us, we're in the Bay Area. This is a big market for baseball. We need the revenue associated with the new park so we can have a payroll that's in the top quartile of the league. And I'm confident that if we have that payroll, and with Billy Bean and David Forrest and the expertise that we have, we can be a contender for a championship year in, year out with the same players. So we've always had to have the churn of players because we didn't have that revenue base, that we were kind of at a disadvantage vis-a-vis the other clubs. And that's why the ballpark is really the key to our, our future, not only for fan experience, not only for the community, but for championship number 10, 11, and 12. You said that you want the next stadium to be the team's home for 50 to 100 years. Mm-hmm. We've seen stadiums recently, Turner Field, Ballpark in Arlington, are already being replaced after 20 years. Mm-hmm. Why do you think, what is it about what you're envisioning that could make this different? Well, I think location matters. I think how you build the ballpark into the surrounding community, you need housing, you need mixed-use retail, it needs to feel like a neighborhood. And that's the type of thing you can't, the destination is very hard to pull off. And so I think it's really important where we build and how we pick the location and how we curate it and how it connects to things. And if it's done right, you can have a Fenway or you can have a Wrigley that lasts hundreds of years. Right. And that's, that's our vision of what we want to do in Oakland. I read a quote from your wife when she said, He's not a, half, a glass half full guy. Dave is the glass is full. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm starting to understand it after the last 25 yeah, minutes, yeah, but yeah. have you always been that way? That's just kind of in my DNA. Like, you know, even if there's, you know, when you experience a setback or something's not going well, you know, I always see the silver lining and I'm always confident that, you know, with the right plan and with the right attitude, that we can have success. And that's that's what I'm trying to bring to the A's every day. In addition to your full-time job with the A's, you've also been a lecturer in the Sports Business Management yeah. program at Stanford Business School. What made you want to get into the academia side, even I, on a limited basis? I, I tell you, I love the students. I love interacting with them. I actually learn just as much as they do. Like, you know, we do a, two classes on eSports. Well, that's a great way to learn about a new part of sports. Or we'll talk about 
cord cutting and how that's affecting media. And the students are younger and they're obviously on the front lines of that. And so for me, it's been a great learning opportunity and it's a great way to give back and make sure that the next generation of leaders in our industry has the tools necessary for success. And so it's a, it's definitely a highlight of my year when I teach in the winters. So. You mentioned you mentioned Billy Bean before. You've called him a visionary leader who truly revolutionized the sport. What's impressed you most about Billy since you actually started working with him on a day-to-day basis? You know, I think he just has a great perspective, like a big picture thinking about how to attack building a baseball team and a business. You know, he's a, he's a great resource for me too in the ballpark hunt, in building the business side. And so it's been great to interact with him and kind of see you know, how he views problems and solves them because there's no better negotiator I've ever met than Billy Bean. And so like even when we had the Sonny Gray trade, to see kind of the intricacies of understanding the other bidders and the value and how it works and using the numbers, I mean, it is really an amazing thing to see. And it's, it's really revolutionized our sport. And, you know, it's cool to be up close and personal with that. You mentioned the Sonny Gray trade. I read that you said he was your favorite player. When you first took yeah, the job, yeah, that's true. How yeah. uh, you know is it difficult when you see guys who you grow to like personally and professionally, and you watch them and you admire what they do, to then have to trade them? It's very hard, and that's why it's hard for our fans when they can't buy the jersey and they don't know what name. You know, if you buy whatever Cespedes or Gray, and they're gone, and that gives me further fuel to invest and in, and kind of burn towards this new ballpark because we know that when we have that, that's not going to be something we have to worry as much about. And I think that's really, really important. Last one for you. Your wife's the vice president of engineering at Oracle. Mm-hmm. Your brother works at Apple. Mm-hmm. Your sister-in-law works at Google. This is true. Are you like the outcast of the family? That I know. Work at a tech I know. company? Yeah, <laughs> I'm the only one. Everybody else, you know, over in Silicon Valley is working in tech. But uh, I got the sports thing going. And, and they all like to come to the game, so it works out okay. So you've got the tickets. It's all yeah, good. Yeah, it, it could be worse. It could be worse. So. Dave Cavill, president of the Oakland A's, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Dave Cavill for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll be joined by my colleague Jim Duquette of MLB.com as we look ahead to the June 4th first-year player draft. Jim will take us behind the scenes of what executives are doing to prepare for the draft, the hardest decisions they'll have to make, and much more. We'll also chat with our colleague Jonathan Mayo, because who knows more about the draft than he does. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.